Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. There are many ways in which Canadians express their national identity. Through song, poetry, tattoos, pride over historic and international achievements, the celebration of multiculturalism, the singing of the anthem, voting in an election, and so many other expressions, large and small, help us define who we are and who we think we are as Canadians. Sport has always played a central role in this search for identity. From cheering for Team Canada at the Olympics to fanatically following your local sports team, sport has always been a way to unite Canadians. But sport has also played a role in helping to express the Canadian experience, especially when that Canadian experience is one that embraces Canada's rugged, hostile, and beautiful environment. In the 1920s and onwards, the famous painting cabal known as the Group of Seven created an international sensation by painting Canada's landscapes, presenting to the world what has been considered Canada's first true school of art. At the same time that these great painters were presenting their material to a world fascinated by Canada's landscapes, Stanley Thompson was doing the same thing with golf courses. Thompson embraced the Canadian terrain and built golf courses into it that celebrated the unique and rugged nature of the Canadian landscape, bringing the player into nature. In many ways, Thompson too was an artist who was also, like the group of seven, celebrating the Canadian experience through expressions of nature. This is Season 8, Episode 5, Stanley Thompson and Golf in Canada. Now, to get to the heart of this matter, we have brought back one of our guests from Season 7. Jordan Goldstein has a PhD in sports history and seven-plus years teaching sports philosophy, sociology, and history. He published his first book entitled Canada's Holy Grail in 2021, a book that investigates the political motivations of Lord Stanley in donating the Stanley Cup and 
as an act of Canadian nation building. Now, Jordan recently quit academia to build a coaching and consulting business, FIA Academy, and to work on curriculum development at Synthesis School. My first question to Jordan was, what are the origins of the game of golf? It's difficult for us to nail down when the sports we have a good understanding of when they started really started. Like here in Canada, for example, you still have debates raging on like when the very first hockey game was played, even though if you want to kind of go by the the letter of of the record, it's March uh, 1875 uh, at McGill University with James Mm -hmm. Creighton and his and his and his friends who wrote down the very first rules. But then you've got, oh, but we used to play it this way in Halifax or in Kingston. We've done this. So everyone's kind of got their like, well, we did it here first, right? Even the game of baseball is sim- is similar, even though we've got the records of, you know, Alexander Cartwright writing down the rules of baseball in 1845 for his Knickerbocker um, baseball club in New York City. You know, there's records from the 1830s from Beachville in Zora, Ontario of rules that were similar to that. Right. And so are those, is that the very first baseball game? Um, Golf is even more vague than any, than any of those, because it's a game that has evolved over centuries Mm -hmm. that is mixed kind of like culture and land and geography all, all together in one, you know, there's a, there's a parable that we can even think about. It's like the game of golf is, is kind of like a, a walk for a Scottish shepherd out on the, out on the, out on the turf. That's it. That's up by the coast. If you can imagine walking around maybe with like a, a companion dog, just uh, out on an afternoon with your walking stick. And as you're walking, you notice that there are kind of like some rocks on the ground that are a little bit, a little bit um, roundish. And so you start knocking them. You start knocking these kind of um, these rocks around. Then all of a sudden, one of them pops into like a little bit of a divot or a little bit of a hole that's just naturally met out. And then the shepherd thinks, you know, this is actually kind of fun. Right. And you can even imagine the upside down of a shepherd's crook. Right. Knocking around some of this stuff. And then over time, he comes back. Right. And and he starts to notice, well, these balls roll a little bit better and these divots and these holes tend to tend to allow me to to aim and actually now that i've walked this a few times this kind of looks like a hole right that i can i i kind of know hey this this divot down there is a good one for this kind of a size and then over the centuries and over the time the land starts to mix with Mm -hmm. the walking and with the gameplay and then all of a sudden this game of golf emerges out of almost like the mist, you know, like almost like the Scottish, the Scottish mist, right. In the morning, uh, a, a ship that, that comes in just out of nowhere. Um, so, so that's kind of the way I like to think about the beginnings of, of golf. When does golf begin to be seriously played? It's around the time that the, uh, the other sports are being codified the very beginning of, of modern sports. So like uh, for example, it's a, it's around the time of like cricket. Um, so mm-hmm. in, the, in the 18th century, golf starts to become m- more formalized, but it's not yet it's not yet organized. Um, that doesn't happen until the 19th century, um, and, and in particular with some improvements uh, and 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 sort of the spread of the game out from its ancestral or spiritual home in St Andrews. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts really with the very first professional golf architect or professional golf teacher or professional golf 
ball maker or professional golf club maker, uh, Alan Robertson, who was the, the, the groundskeeper at St. Andrews in the mid kind of like the 1830s, 1840s, uh, 1850s. And he was, um, he was instrumental in popularizing and, and kind of spreading the game outwards uh, and sort of modernizing and standardizing the game a little bit more. Um, and then he passed on his knowledge to his protege, uh, old Tom Morris, who is maybe like the greatest legend of the game uh, mm. in terms of being from St. Andrews, spreading the ideas of, of golf architecture from St. Andrews to the other parts uh, of Scotland. He famously went to Prestwick um, when Alan Robertson was still the groundskeeper at, at St. Andrews. Tom Morris left and, and started up a club at Prestwick. Then he came back uh, to St. Saint, to Saint Andrews and was responsible for a lot of the changes that have become sort of standard in golf in terms of like the 18-hole course structure. Um, a lot of the modern design features in terms of like why you would design a hole in a particular way uh, emanated uh, from from Tom Morris, old Tom Morris. Uh, he was one of the, he, he competed in the very first um, national championships in Britain, the Open Championship, um, the oldest championship in golf. I believe is 1860 or 1861. I forget exactly. Um, which a, fu a fun part about that is they actually competed for a championship belt. So you know how like boxers and like pro wrestlers, they've got the belts. Well, the very first like golfers uh, uh, until they, they got the Claret Jug, I think it was 10 years later. Um, the, the winners of the first British Open golf tournaments all had these amazing and fancy belts. Um, so, so there's some pretty fun ones. Um, but old Tom Morris, then, then uh, his son was also like a crack player, young Tom Morris, perhaps the greatest golfer who ever lived. Some of his records certainly are incredible in terms of how young he was, how far ahead he was of everybody else. You just outclassed them. Think of like a young Tiger Woods of the 19th century, but uh, tragically he died young. Uh, and so we never got to see kind of like his great, um, his great um, superstardom or, or his legacy. Um, but all this is kind of happening kind of like the mid 19th century in Scotland. And that's kind of like where the golf craze emanates and starts from. And then in the mid 19th century, it begins to spread outward to England and then to the other English speaking parts of the world, uh, the British, uh, the British Empire the Dominions, Canada, eventually Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, and the United States as well. So it's kind of at that moment when the Canadian golf story is uh, begins as the game is being really refined and popularized in Scotland, and it's just starting to break out into the rest of the English-speaking world. Is there a way, can you, can you identify, historically speaking, when golf is accepted or becomes sort of an accepted sport in Canada itself? It would be around that same time in the 18, okay. the beginning of the, the, the late 19th century, or like the latter third. Um, we end up with the very first um, golf clubs. Yeah. Uh, I believe the first golf club in Canada was 1873. And I think it's, it's either Hamilton or Montreal, but I want to say oh, wow. Hamilton. Okay. seventy-three, but it's around that time that the, right. it's around this time that the very first golf clubs are being established. We don't have sanctioned competition uh, yet, but like at, at this point, there really isn't much competition in Canadian sport. Anyways, the big sport in Canada is the big team sport is baseball. 
Uh, and the big individual sport is growing in terms of like spectator sports uh, and, and a serious competition. There is no hockey yet. <laughs> uh, hockey is basically, basically just being invented by college kids. Um, so, so Canadian sport in itself is in, in a bit of an, in a bit of an infancy, there's horse racing uh, and there are the games that are organized by the garrisons, by the British troops that are sent over um, from, from Great Britain. But otherwise there's, there's 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 not much else really that's happening um outside of a few well-established sports again more like baseball uh cricket horse racing uh, um, and some winter and some winter things pardon me no, and, but it's really interesting because what you know golf basically arrives in canada i mean it's because we of course and we've talked about this before you and i but hockey is so embedded in this idea of Canadian identity, Canadian sport and identity, but golf is kind of just arriving at the same time that hockey is sort of being first, first played informally and, and first codified and stuff like that. So it's really clear that golf is arriving in Canada or being accepted in Canada at the same time that other sports are also being sort of accepted and spread. So this is a really interesting period at the end of the 19th century when sport is becoming really important to many Canadians and many different sports are becoming very important to many different Canadians. And then we have so and then you write about this really incredible character, Stanley Thompson. So maybe you could give our listeners who is Stanley Thompson? Where does he emerge from? What's his sort of historical significance? Yeah, absolutely. And there's one one important thread that we should make when talking about like the Canadian acceptance of particular sports or or sports becoming a part of Canadian culture, right? The people who are Canadian nationalists, like the Canadian nation builders, are mostly of Scottish descent, right? Um, if you think about our prime ministers and a lot of our very first civic leaders, they all come, they all have Scottish names, right? Um, mm-hmm. and and so the Scottish culture itself, I think, is a lot more um currency in terms of its connection to canadian culture than say like an english culture i wouldn't consider canada very english certainly like a city like toronto at at that time would have been would have been english but montreal dominated by scottish mm. uh, and montreal was the big big it was the big city so it's not it's it, it shouldn't surprise us that the two national sports of scotland golf and curling are also important uh sports in canada curling the very first, the very first sports club, essentially that was um, founded in Canada, was a curling club. Mm. So, so there's there's an interesting cultural link between these two Scottish national sports, curling and golf. They share a lot of characteristics with each other, um, and they're they're very much evocative of that of a Presbyterian identity, like a mm. Scottish a Scottish a, a Scottish religious flavor, if if you will. And just to tie it all even more into an interesting knot, St. Andrews is the spiritual home of, of Presbyterianism in Scotland. It's like the religious ecclesiastical center uh, of kind of like Presbyterian and religious thought. Um, so it's a very important place. And that's where golf comes from. Uh, so golf has this very out, outstretched spiritual national significance to the cult, to the country of Scotland. So we should, it shouldn't surprise us at all that it would also take root um, in Canada and and Stanley Thompson himself is the son of Scottish nationals like of Scottish of Scottish immigrants um so he grows up in east part of Toronto basically okay. he grows up in, in the east part of Toronto um and his brothers are known as kind of like the famous Stanley uh the the, the famous golfing family um his his dad basically got them jobs as caddies when they were young 
at one of the local clubs uh, and they all became pretty good golfers, like in terms of winning youth championships um, and playing in the Ontario amateurs. Uh, so, so they were, they all, they all competed. Stanley Thompson um, became known as the godfather of Canadian golf architecture. So the golf courses that are made in Canada, the ones that are the best, the ones that all of the Canadian architects have emulated and copied were built by Stanley Thompson, essentially. Um, and Stanley Thompson himself belongs to a larger international movement of golf uh, course architects known as the strategic school. And these strategic school architects wanted to return to the essence of golf uh, and especially to the way that the courses were played uh, back to the time of people like um, old Tom Morris, for example. So in between old Tom Morris and Stanley Thompson, there was a school of uh, golf course architecture that was very similar to the way that all the other sports were turned into like one standard arena that we play. Like the size of a hockey rink is one size, right? The size of a, of a football field in Canada is one size in America. It's another, but it's the same, you know, if you're on one side of the border or the, or the other, even in baseball, where we've got the irregular outfields, we still have the diamond, right? It's 90 feet between the, between the bases, right? So every sport has a playing field that is exactly the same. Well, golf tried to go down that road and tried to make the, the courses a lot more standard. So if you can imagine a golf course with perpendicular lines and isosceles triangle bunkers and like teardrop mounds. So all of these perfect geometrical shapes, but they don't really fit in the natural landscape. And these courses were also very difficult, right? If you weren't a very good player, your ball was going to be in a trap, in a hazard, in the rough, you were not going to be having a very good time playing, playing these courses. Um, and there was a bit of a golf boom and then a bit of a bust. So around the time when Stanley Thompson gets into golf course architecture after serving time in the Canadian forces during world war one. So this is around like the 1920s uh, and just kind of in the, in the few years before that, in the 1910s as well, golf course architects began to return to this idea of Tom Morris, which was like a natural school of golf course architecture. The golf hole blends into the environment. It's almost as it just emerges kind of like that, that beginning story I was talking about in Scotland, right? Well, that's how St. Andrews had evolved over time. And when Tom Morris was shifting around and creating new holes and, and, and making old holes better. He did it in a way to preserve that idea or that feel of the landscape. And one of the hallmarks of that natural school is that there's multiple ways to play the hole. There's not just like one way to play the hole. A player who hits short has a way to get there. A player who hits long has a way to get there. A player who's a bit erratic has a way to get there. Um, and these strategic school architects, they worked for golf clubs and golf clubs want people to come out and play. Right. So they have to figure out, well, how do we get people who may not be good at the game to come out and want to enjoy the game? One of the ways is options, make sure smaller uh, players who aren't as good can, can navigate and have a good time on the course. So this idea of strategic golf is multiple routes to the hole. Okay. Um, for, for those golfers out there, uh, people who are listening, the, you know how we have multiple tee boxes, right? You've got the forward tee box. If you're a short hitter, you go to the forward ones. They didn't even have that until that was a strategic uh, golf course architect innovation 
which again makes good sense if you add it onto the handicap system now we can have good players and bad players playing against each other uh, and that's what the strategic golf architects wanted they wanted people to come out to have fun so multiple multiple avenues to the whole but what was truly revolutionary about these strategic ar uh, golf architects was their ability to create beautiful works of art out of the landscape and that's what they were they were these artists who looked at a forest or a piece of land and thought this is where a golf course could go because it looks as if it blends in with these natural features with this with this contouring of the land right and and when you're on a good golf course today that's the kind of feeling that the architect wants to evoke. Like, like this hole just emerged out of the natural landscape, even though I had to terraform this hill and I had to bring in these trees and I had to put, you know, and everything here is essentially created, but it's created in a way that makes it look as if it's natural and that it, and that it blend and that it blends in. So Stanley Thompson was the first person to bring this idea to the Canadian landscape when he started designing what would become the most famous Canadian golf courses ever created uh, when he started out his firm in the 1920s. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And, and, and you write about how he develops his own kind of unique school. You call it the heroic school. So maybe you could uh, give our listeners a bit more details to why, why it does what, why is this sort of a unique, what, what makes this a unique school? Yeah, my thesis is that uh, the heroic school is actually a Canadian national adaptation onto the strategic school. So if the strategic school gives us multiple options um, to the whole, uh, St. Andrews is the, is sort of like the textbook example of this, but imagine <laughs> you're at the T right. And you, there, there's a, an option for you off the T to hit straight there's a place where you can go wide to the right. And there's a place that you can go wide to the left. And each of those positions gives you a different way to get in to the green in, in two shots. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's multiple ways to get there. The penal school is like, there's only one way. And if you don't mm -hmm. go that one way, you're, you're not going to get there. The strategic school is kind of like, well, there's a, uh, a the, sorry. Um, the heroic school is kind of like a blending of the strategic and the penal. It's okay. like, there are a couple ways for you to get there. One way is really risky, right? Think about having to, I don't know, clear like 215 yards to get over to, to get over uh, a water hazard just for your drive. So you have to drive the ball minimum 215 yards, right? Mm -hmm. Or there's a landing spot that you can go around but it's going to require you now to take an extra shot to get to the hole. So you do have an option, but the safe, there's a safe play and there's a risky and there's a risky play. And the goal, what the golf architect does in the heroic school is they trick you and they tempt you into making the, they, they say, come on, tempt, they tempt you take the tricky play, try to make that carry, try to hit it to that, to that one side of that bunker. Right. Um, if you're on a part three, Stanley Thompson was the master of part threes. 
uh, for exactly this. And his par threes are, are world are world famous because he tricks you and he tempts you. He, he, he does something with the, uh, with your eye that makes you think, well, I can do this. But then all of a sudden when your ball is in flight and it doesn't work out for you, you think, Oh shoot, he tricked me. I actually couldn't do it. So the heroic school, the heroic school uses nature to evoke a challenge, right? Mm. It says, if you think you can do this, here's your option. If not, take a safe play. And why I argue that's a Canadian adaptation is because at this time that Stanley Thompson is creating these golf courses, Canada is still trying to figure out its national essence. And I know that you wanted to eventually talk about the, the group of seven and my papers on the group of seven. I find it striking that in 1924, Stanley Thompson is at the base of Jasper mountain in Alberta, building out the world's very first mountain golf course, right. Which become Jasper, uh, Jasper golf club, uh, which is one of the most world famous courses. So here he is doing something. No other golf architect has ever done building a golf course in a mountain on a mountain, which is he he's also built some golf courses in, um, North in kind of like uh, Muskoka area. So very in very rocky terrain, um, not a, not a place like the traditional Scottish coast where golf comes from. Uh, so, so golf architects at this time are building in locations and locales that are not traditionally hospitable to, to building a golf course because you need a particular type of soil and you need a particular type of agronomy to essentially pull, pull this off. So he's out there trying to figure out, well, how do I bring this strategic school to this Canadian mountain range? Lauren, uh, Lauren Harris and J E H McDonald, two of the founding members of this, the, uh, the group of seven, the very first Canadian national school of art they're at the summit. They're they're on top of Jasper Mountain in the summer of 1924, painting the mountain peaks on Jasper. So we've got Stanley Thompson kind of at the base of the mountain, and we got Lauren Harris and J.E.H. McDonald, um, kind of like in the middle and at the top of the mountain. And they're both Canadian artists, and they're both working on these like what will become master masterpieces and expressions of Canadian nation nationalism in different ways. But what is it that binds them? It's this. It's this tackling of the harsh nature of the Canadian environment. Like that's the story of Canada, right? It's like, it's a harsh, it's an unforgiving terrain. The settlers who came and colonized the country had to do so with, with, with bravery, courage, uh, help, obviously from, from the indigenous who, who, who lived here. Um, but, but grit and guts and resiliency and determination. So when I was talking about the Scottish character of Canadian national identity, think about the highlanders right the people who endure like those really tough weather conditions and they do it with like that stoic attitude stiff upper lip that like all this stuff is very very much rooted in this experience that comes from a harsh and unforgiving terrain and having to live there this is why kind of like a scottish national character and a canadian national character go pretty well to go pretty well together um and so that's the heroic adaptation it's like well we're out in nature. Nature challenges us. There's a there's a, a drama of nature. There's a beauty. There's a danger element of nature, and we contend with all of that in our understanding of what it is and what it means to be Canadian. And we know that through our experience of living on the land and surviving on it. I mean, that's what the like. That's the whole. That's the whole lore of the indigenous. It's like the of the land, survive of the land. When when the French and British settlers came, they were in awe 
of the physical strength and bravado and stoicism of the indigenous tribes because they survived in these incredibly harsh conditions and were just physically strong and big. Um, so that idea of tackling nature is in the Canadian experience and it's in our Canadian national identity. And so when you're thinking about a, a heroic type of a golf course where it's like, take on this challenge and it's the challenge of nature, well, to me, that's exactly what a Canadian national expression is. It's mm -hmm. a nature challenges us. Nature evokes us to bring our best to the challenge. And through that and through us conquering that challenge, we become one or we become more bonded to the land. Uh, and then that becomes an expression of our community and of our culture. And there's not much to bind the indigenous, the French, the British, and then all the people who've immigrated and who have been born on this land today right especially with the fractious nature of our national identity from its beginning but but that's the one thing everybody who lives here shares but it's that yeah. is but it is that experience of enduring the environment that yeah. i think um that that's my thesis on why that's the why 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 thompson is the a he is the creator of it there's a little bit of a technical distinction there's a very famous american golf course architect robert trent jones um, and he did an incredible amount of courses and, and he and Stanley Thompson were actually in business together. Um, but, but Trent Jones learned under Stanley Thompson and then he took what he learned and then he transported it down into the United States. So they call him the father of heroic golf, but I, he learned it from Stanley Thompson. So Stanley Thompson is the real father of heroic, is, is the real father of heroic golf, which then allows me to make this Canadian nationalist spin on like you say, he's the father of this school. How just just like in numbers, do you know how many courses and through what time period Thompson is creating, building courses and designing them? Um, basically, from the earliest, I believe, design um, came actually before he was sent off to World War One. Although it was it's not like um, fulfilled, but most most of his work was done in the twenties and the thirties. Although he okay. was designing courses in. The in the 40s and up into his death in the 50s he's credited with somewhere around 150 designs in canada wow. alone in canada alone and um, he did and, and he was and he did he did he uh design international courses outside of canada at all he did not too many uh as i mentioned he was a master at um at the time of, of building golf courses in many different terrains. So one of the hallmarks of the strategic course architects was that they were particularly good in one type of a, in one type of a terrain. So again, like the Scottish coast is a, per, is a perfect place for golf because it gives us this like turfy, this soft turfy grass, right? Like the think about the grass needed on like a putting green or on a fairway, mm -hmm. like very fine, very spun, very spongy. Um, it's very difficult to recreate those types of conditions in other places naturally. So this is also like a very technological phenomenon. Um, so golf course architects, they're like artists. They're part artists. They're part scientists. Right. And they're part like sportsmen. So they're these very interesting figures and especially this strategic school, they, they, they're the ones who they, they view themselves first as artists, which is why I like to make the connection between them and the group of seven is because mm -hmm. they view themselves as artists who shape the land to create something of beauty. And what they create is a sporting field. It's a place where we get to play sport on like a golf course is one of the, it's, it's probably the only piece of art in the world where you actually get to go and have a competition on it. Right. Like, like, and you, you will have, you'll have known this, uh, David, as playing golf. When you go to some golf holes and some courses and you just look at the tee box and you think this is spectacular. 
I could just walk through here and be and be and be very happy because this is such a, a such a beautifully manicured and well thought out design that it just when I'm here, I just feel like I'm surrounded by natural by natural beauty. And that's one of the things that these strategic golf course architects wanted. They wanted natural, they wanted it, they wanted this natural features and this beauty of the course, right? The strategy, the 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 playability, they called it skill democracy. That was one part, but the other two, two tenets of design philosophy was natural features. The course has to look like the environment that it's in, and it has to be beautiful. It has to mm -hmm. evoke this sense of majesty, of drama. Um, and so when you're thinking about like Stanley Thompson building a course in Jasper, and this was, um, and he followed this up with his design at Banff a few years later, the the, the way that Stanley Thompson does this as an artist is is one of the one of the one of the ways we can understand it is through his bunkering. So if you if some people have played those courses or will note it, the bunkers on each of the holes are are designed specifically to mimic the shapes of the mountain peaks that you can see on on each one of the holes. So Stanley Thompson is reflecting right the mountains in the hazards that then he's challenging the player to take on or to to to, to walk away from so for the so, so every every little element of these courses right is being essentially influenced and inspired by the land on on which it sits upon right um and that creates a very special relationship as you're saying between the player and the course and there's i don't believe any other sport allows that type of a allows that type of a relationship which i think gives a special place for these golf course architects as unique in the world of mm -hmm. sports for what they're able to create right there are golf golfers have a bucket list of courses they want to get to in their life, right? They want to go for historic reasons. They want to go for scenic reasons, right? But they also go because of the challenge. Like I want to try this course because it's got this hole with this feature in this place. And these amount of people have tried, have played it. And there've been these tournaments, right? And, and all of that goes, go, go, goes into it. So these golf courses become real testaments of our history, uh, real testaments to our history. And, um, it's an it's a totally another interesting part of Stanley Thompson's um, connection to Canadian nationalism and identity is a lot of his designs were built inside of Canada's national parks. Oh. So Jasper, Jasper uh, Banff, um, Cape Breton, but also um, Green Gables and PEI. So the, so 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 his his designs are actually tied into the national park system and the national park system, again, has this ability to create a national identity through the land or through our connection and experience during our connection and our experience with the land. Um, and, uh, in, uh, the, the group of seven, um, article, pardon me, um, the Canadian, it's like, um, shoot, uh, the landscape is art. Uh, I, I talk a little bit about the connection as well between the parks department and the promotion of, of the land as, in essence, Canadiana, and then how these golf courses were folded into like tourist experiences and were promoted as, as part and parcel of that, of that, of that connection as well. So it, it, Stanley Thompson's connection to the nationalism of this country runs, runs quite deep, actually his position uh, as, as essentially sculpting out places in our national park system uh, for Canadians to go and essentially experience a part of Canadiana. 
was Stanley Thompson recognized internationally or was this like after his death they, that people started to really see it? No, he was known as one of the greats. He was known as one of the titans of, of strategic golf course architecture. Um, there's kind of like a godfather of that school. His name is Dr. Alistair McKenzie. Uh, he was Scottish and he's the one who kind of brought these him and along with other a couple of other uh, a couple of other Scottish guys, Donald Ross. Um, for, for golfers out there, you might know the name Pinehurst. Donald Ross is the, the architect of Pinehurst down in 1903 in, in North Carolina. Um, that's a penal school uh, design, but it's one of the one of the ones that kind of lasted. Another another old penal school, just because I know you're a golfer, David, is Oakmont. So Stanley Thompson was known. Dr. Alistair McKenzie came to survey uh, Jasper uh, a few years after it was built, and his notes um, were essentially like, this is the finest, this is like one of the finest golf courses in the world, essentially. It was like, for him, it was like Jasper, St. Andrews, and uh, well, it hadn't been built at that time, but in the 30s, it would then have been Augusta. Like these were like the, the big ones. The other one he was talking about was like Cypress Point or Pebble Beach or the National Golf Links of America. Like these like historic, legendary courses and the, the ones that were known at that time in the 20s to have been like the best. Stanley Thompson's work was often seen on par. Uh, and, and he was known as just this master. You talk, uh, you asked me if he had built courses in other locations. He built in Brazil. He built in the Caribbean because he was the only person who was willing to take on the challenge of building in these exotic locales and locations where it would be difficult to recreate the ideal uh, agricultural uh, conditions to have a nice golf course, you know. And so Stanley Thompson was known for his ability to bring in the right types of grasses, to 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 talk about the right types of sand, to build the right types of greens and fair and the right types of irrigation systems and he was just an absolute master of putting not only the artistic vision to life but then the scientific and agricultural knowledge um to to to, to put it all together that's fascinating um maybe for our listeners because we're we're, we're we're wrapping up now but maybe for our listeners could you give us like i don't know in your personal opinion a couple of what you think are the best stanley thompson courses or stanley thompson inspired courses that maybe some of our avid golf listeners might uh, recognize yeah well most of the best courses in canada i mean uh, pretty much all the courses in canada i would suggest are stanley thompson inspired courses um in 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 a sense as i mentioned he had his hand in over 100 designs in canada and so if you're learning golf architecture in canada you just you come into contact with 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 thompson um the bid the most well-known ones I've, I've already mentioned banff jasper cape breton highlands uh royal st george's where they just held the canadian open uh, at royal st george's here uh, in in toronto i don't live in toronto but it's close to me it's it's close it's close enough um at where you're playing in vancouver cap cap capilano um most of his work is centered kind of in on in in on in Ontario. Uh, I played in Stanley Thompson tournament in 2019 at Dundas Valley, which was, which was lovely. Um, it's just, there's, 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 there's a lot, there's a lot out there. Um, what's nice about some of the Stanley Thompson courses are there, there are some that are publicly available um, that you can play. I know one in um, Ontario, that's a public courses, Kawartha, which is up in Peterborough. Um, and it's consistent. It's ranked one of the top public courses in, in, in Canada, uh, Cape Breton Highlands always ranked very highly, uh, used to rank very highly. It's still, still a great course, a little bit more accessible. 
it so so a lot of the top quality courses in Canada you could say are just touched by Stan by Stanley Thompson and even the ones that aren't directly related to that tree they're kind of designing courses in that fashion where it's like we use nature to evoke drama and beauty and then we we challenge the player with something on that course that evo- that is that is a natural feature or something that's related to that landscape so it really it really isn't an understatement to say that Stanley Thompson is w- one of if not the most sig- significant arc golf course architect in Canadian golf history. He's the golf course. He is the the Canadian he's the godfather of Canadian golf course architect. He it's him. He's the one. Everybody kind of comes after him. Uh but in terms of Canada, yeah, it's he he he's 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 the one who put Canadian golf courses on the map. And he's the one that all the Canadian golf course architects essentially live in live in the shadow of. And and most of them, he might not be their favorite golf architect, but if you had to ask them who's the biggest in Canada, like they're all answering. They're all answering Stan, Stanley Thompson. He is inducted into a lot of the Canadian Hall of Fame, sports Hall of Fames for a very good reason, you know, because he does have that outsized influence on the game, right? Uh, and, and, and in particular on its spread and on this unique relationship between the landscape and 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 the game in Canada I I don't think it's I don't think it's a stretch to say he's the one that created that Canadian link in the strategic school that took that that connection to nature to even more of an an extreme extent because that's the that's our Canadian expression that's our Canadian national identity I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.